Every t-shirt tells a story. There's no better time than now to create a custom-designed t-shirt and make a difference. Our friends at Underground Printing make it easier than ever to start a t-shirt fundraiser for your charity, school, business, or any cause you support. All you have to do is design your shirt, share why you are raising, and then share your campaign. They will ship the orders direct and send along the funds you raise. Underground actually created the I Am Norman t-shirts, which supported the United Way of Norman, and it was very easy to set up. Just visit pogo.undergroundshirts.com to learn more about how you can create your own t-shirt fundraiser today. That's pogo.undergroundshirts.com. Hello and welcome to I Am Norman, a podcast about the great city of Norman, Oklahoma. Well, I'm originally a Normanite. I'm a Norman girl. I've always looked at Norman as just a fabulous place. I had a great childhood here. And I am a Norman girl. I mean, born and raised from day one, Norman, Oklahoma. I haven't lived anywhere as long as I've lived here. So I call Norman home now, and it's a, it's a great place to live. I'm Zach Logsdon, and I hope you'll join me each episode as we hear the stories of the amazing people, businesses, philanthropies, and upcoming events in Norman, and what makes our big little city so great. I love that in Norman, I am part of something that's so much bigger than me. I just think that the people here in Norman are extremely generous. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Nothing loves anything the way Norman loves Norman. The I Am Norman podcast is brought to you by Norman Heating, Air Conditioning, and Plumbing. When your home or business needs cold air or hot water, Call Norman Heating, Air Conditioning, and Plumbing at 405-823-9641 or visit them online at normanair.com. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the I Am Norman podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Got a great episode ahead for you today. But before we get started, a quick little announcement. I want to let everybody know that I have a new TV show coming out. It's available exclusively on YouTube and it's called O-Flip. O-Flip documents the uh, adventures of my business partner and I, Robert Smith, as we flip a house right here in Norman, Oklahoma. It's a lot of fun, and I invite you to check it out. Again, it's available exclusively on YouTube. You can find out more information about the show, about us, and subscribe uh, to our YouTube channel and uh, follow us on Instagram. All that information is available at our website, www.oflip.tv. I hope you check it out. I hope you love it, and I hope you will share it with your friends and your family and all those people on Facebook that you don't really like very much, but you're friends with them on social media anyway. So check it out, and, and stay tuned for a great episode starting right now. Hello, Normanites, and welcome to another episode of the I Am Norman podcast. Very excited about our guest today. Um, Ed Kelly is with us. Ed is uh, an award-winning journalist. 
He is the former editor of The Oklahoman, and he is the current dean of the Gaylord College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Oklahoma. Mr. Ed Kelly, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Zach. Ed, start. Uh, well, well, actually, let me let me pause there because because in full disclosure, uh, the the you know this podcast uh, is about about Norman and and the people that make it great. But uh, you will be my first guest that uh, is actually not a current resident of, of of Norman. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. I uh, I spend five and often six days a week in Norman, driving back and forth to from uh, Northwest Oklahoma City. It's an easy. Reverse commute, 30 minutes is all it is, <laughs> but, you know, I, I get my hair cut in Norman. I've had dentists and doctors in Norman. I pick up my dry cleaning in Norman, so well, I deal as much Norman as I do Oklahoma City. Please. Right, right. So, you know, the, the, the podcast is about uh, Norman and the people and the organizations that make it a great place, and you uh, having been uh, a student at the University of Oklahoma and now the dean of the College of Journalism and Mass Communication there, you are definitely someone that has and does make Norman great, so so happy to have you on on the the I am Norman podcast but so so with that tell people tell our listeners a little bit about yourself uh your family um your you know anything about your career you just, just who who is Ed Kelly Well thank you uh, I guess I also must confess I grew up in in OSU country in Perry right? if you know where that's at Yeah 24 miles or so from Stillwater I spent a heck of a lot more time, Zach, growing up when I was growing up in Stillwater than I ever did in Norman. But there was really never any doubt in my mind that I would end up in Norman at at and at OU. I have a son uh, who's an OSU graduate. I have a sister who's an OSU graduate, and my mother went to OSU for a couple of years way back in the day. So it's a it's a place that's been good uh, for my family. But as I said, I feel like I was really meant to be sooner. Uh, as far as family, my wife, Carol, and I met at a New Year's Eve party a long time ago, and we married just about a year later. We've been married now for 43 years. Carol is a, is an OU graduate herself and a lifelong educator, uh, primarily uh, at the high school level. She and I have three adult children, and as of December 2nd, a third grandchild. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. We're happy. So, so talk about the, you know you said growing up near and Stillwater, going to Stillwater a lot. But you, what you said was that you always knew you would be a Sooner. What was it about Norman that that drew you down here? Well, I've been, I was very, very fortunate. You know, a lot of people spend sometimes half their life figuring out what they really want to do with their with their career. But I've known really since I was 15 years old that I wanted to be involved in, in journalism. And while I was in high school in my early college days, uh, I thought for a while that I was going to be the world's greatest sports writer. I was admitted to OU as a, as a freshman and had a scholarship, but I went to a junior college because I wanted to start my sports writing career immediately to use a sports term. I didn't want to have to set the bench for <laughs> anybody, mm-hmm. but I knew that OU was obviously going to be my ultimate destination. So about halfway, uh, about halfway through the fall semester of my junior year, I decided that uh, not only was I not probably going to be the world's greatest sports writer, but that listening to coaches kind of say the same thing over and over uh, every week, I thought, you know, that might be kind of boring after a while. So I went home at Thanksgiving, went back to Perry Thanksgiving, told my parents that I was going to 
make the switch from, you know, my dream of, of, of writing sports to, to um, just being a general news reporter. And at the time, and this really does date me, but the big story at the time in the United States was, was that of Watergate. And although I knew, like everybody else did, that I'd never cover a story as big as that, the reporting that was done by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein really did inspire a lot of college journalism students at the time, including including me. So making that switch was one of the very best decisions I, I ever made, career decisions, because it really, really did allow me to to expand my horizon. And, you know, the OU journalism program was the premier program, obviously, in, in Oklahoma. Uh, and in this part of the country, like I said, I had a I had a scholarship awaiting me as a freshman. When I did transfer, the scholarship was still there. Uh, immediately was hired uh, the OU Daily staff, and uh, and then my career just kind of kind of took off. So, um, you know, OU journalism and the university itself, um, you know, this this place changes lives, regardless of what what generation you came out of, and that certainly it certainly was the case for me. So you touched on something there, and, and I and I have my list of questions in front of me that that I want to ask you. But you touched on something that kind of makes me want to to pivot and go a different direction for a second, if I may. Is you, you said you know you 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 felt like you'd never get to cover anything as as big as uh, as Watergate, but you actually you know fast forward a number of years uh, did get to cover something that arguably was, was as big a deal. Um, and you won a number of awards for that. I, I know, and, and I'm and I'm speaking of the Oklahoma City bombing. Talk a little bit about that because, and, and you know, and and the coverage of that, and and the, um, I guess just that time, that period of your life. I know our listeners, you know, many of us. I was a senior in high school uh, when when the bomb went off. I was actually it was senior skip day, and was uh, I awoke uh, in Guthrie is where I grew up. Um, and the we heard the, uh, the 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 explosion rattled our house all the way up there. And that's what I awoke to that morning. Um, tell us about that period and and covering that. I'm sure there's a, a number of interesting stories that go along with your coverage of that event. Well, yeah, obviously it was, and and I think all of us at the time who were at the Oklahoma as well as everybody else in the Oklahoma City media market. We instinctively knew, regardless of where we were in, in the individual stages of our career, that this was going to be the biggest story that we were ever ever engaged in from day one. I like to tell people, and I've told people all over the country, that this was really the last big story in the United States before the Internet era. Mm-hmm. Um, the story was, was broken on broadcast news, and uh, newspapers were still newspapers of record. Um, we and again, this really does date me, although it was just barely 25 years ago. But we at the Oklahoma considered that morning putting out an, an extra edition of replating the front page as well as a few inside pages with the information that we knew at the time. Uh, again, because we we had a we had a website, but we didn't really know what to do with it. And the only the only news organization that day in the state, I think I'm right when I say this, Zach, that 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 posted stories to its site was that of the student paper here at OU, the daily. Oh, wow. uh, everybody else either didn't have a site or like we, we had one, but we really didn't know what to do with it. Obviously we didn't do the extra edition. That was, even if we were able to put one out, we didn't know where we would take it or, or anybody would, would want to buy it. 
so we concentrated our efforts, obviously, on the, on the on getting as much information as we can, not to duplicate what broadcast was heroically doing that day, but but to try to uh, go even deeper, uh, go even deeper the next morning. And um, you know, one thing that that I use as an example when I say that the last big story of the internet era, that one of the one of the rumors that we and everyone else was chasing that day was that that the bomb was supposedly might have been the work of Middle Eastern terrorists. Uh, well, we just like everybody else, we chased it down, but determined determined before uh, we went to press that there really wasn't anything to hang our hat on here. If I recall, we made mention of it uh, just in a paragraph or two in a story inside the paper. That, of course, was spring 1995. Mm-hmm. If this would have happened one year later to the day on April 19, 1996, it would have been a completely different, um, completely different pursuit of that story because many people, ourselves included, had a, had a website at the time up and running and we're posting stories to it. And so we may have been forced by competition to chase that story, even though it turned out there was, there was nothing to it. So just the, the fact that one year later, would have made a difference in how not not only we at the Oklahoma, but so many other news organizations, whether they were locally based or um, national news organizations came in here, how they would have chased that rumor would have been, I think, completely different than it would than it was in the spring of, of 1995. Um, we at the time knew, or at least I think we instinctively knew too, that that on that first day that there were going to be two enormous stories. And I use the term inside inside the Oklahoman when I was as, as managing editor, I used the term Twin Towers. Now, obviously, six years later, uh, on 9-11, the Twin Towers took a different meaning. But I, I used that term because the stories were as big as towers rising out of the prairie. One of them was obviously the crime, and this was first and foremost the crime. And we, we took great pride in having good local sources among law enforcement types. But we also knew instinctively that with national media, international media coming in here, that, that many of those reporters were going to have sources uh, within the FBI, within the Justice Department, the Bureau of All Tobacco and Firearms, and other places in the federal government that we in Oklahoma City did not have. So there was going to be part of this, part of the story of the crime itself that we were not going to break exclusively, and we just, we're just going to have to live with that. But the other piece of those Twin Towers were, were the victims. And not just the people who were killed, but the 600 or so who were injured. Mm-hmm. And I felt strongly that we absolutely had to own that part of the story. That when, when all the national media would leave, and they all left eventually. Some of them left after a day or two. Some of them left after a week or so. Some of them stayed around for three or four weeks. But we all knew they were eventually going to leave. That that was the story that was ours, and it could be it had to be ours alone. Mm-hmm. And that if we didn't get that right, portraying the victims uh, of this crime, if we did not get that right, I firmly believe that would have risked the health and vitality of the of the Oklahoma. And so we spent a great deal of time on that. We uh, before it was all over, we had we did a what we called a profile of life of every single every single person who was killed, all 168 of them. We. Uh, uh, we knew that some people, uh, some of the victims, uh, their families, friends, neighbors wouldn't talk to us, and that was okay. 
But we found more often than not that there were people, plenty of people who would want to talk about losing a friend, a neighbor, or a loved one, mm-hmm. uh, and not just how they died, but more importantly, how they lived. And so we deployed the entire the entire staff, not just the new staff, but but others uh, others in our newsroom. And we found uh, at the end that that two staffs that did a great job were the features department mm-hmm. and particularly our sports staff, and because both of them were used to, the people in both of those departments were used to talking to people, and particularly the sports reporters, the sports guys, they were used to working on deadline. So some of the best work out of, out of that bombing was done by people that you, in the newsroom, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think would have been on the scene on that, on that day and the many, many days that followed it outside the Murrah building. So uh, again, it was truly a, a absolutely total staff effort. One thing too, that, that, that it was pretty apparent to me early on was that, that uh, this was going to take an emotional toll on our, on our staff, mm-hmm. the people who were, who were covering. I use the term up against the building figuratively, meaning people who were reporters, photographers, uh, and others who were down at the bomb site, as well as at other places like hospitals, at First Christian Church, which was sort of a, a triage area uh, mm-hmm. uh, for lots and lots of people. That um, uh, folks doing this kind of work, uh, as good as good as they were, they didn't sign up for this kind of work. Uh, this is this. They didn't sign up for for going into the equivalent of sort of a battle a battlefield or a battle zone. And so uh, that very first night on April 19, we uh, we brought in a woman uh, named Charlotte Lankert, who is a licensed counselor. She still has a relationship with the paper today, writes a weekly column, to come in and visit with anyone who was having trouble sort of absorbing what they what they saw uh, and heard and felt that particular day. So right. Charlotte was great. She came back every single day for as long as people wanted to meet. Some people uh, kept a relationship with Charlotte for 18 months to two years trying to talk this through. But I do know that there were people, despite Charlotte's help, that um, that were really uh, badly wounded by this. I noticed in the fall of 1995, roughly six months or so after the bombing, that there were members of our staff who, who um, uh, when, they, when they fell ill, you know, they'd come to work anyway, or maybe they would miss a day. Well, they were missing not a day, but three or four days or a week. Uh, I, there were also people, too, that were having problems with spouses, partners, significant others, as well as their children. It seemed like there were now over the next few months an abnormally high number of separations and, unfortunately, even divorces that came out of this. Um, I think that people were emotionally and physically wounded where, you know, illness uh, simple illnesses like colds or even the vomiting virus that people were taking much longer to recover mm-hmm. as well as the emotional toll that it took on people. So we obviously, uh, the media at the time were not first responders, but really in many ways, uh, and I include not just the Oklahoman, but everybody in media at the time in Oklahoma city, we were truly the second responders in this. And to suggest that, that, you know, what we went through, would be a markedly less and different than what others were going through is was just not true. Yeah. So, um, like I said, there were people whose whose not just careers were changed, but lives were changed. Some for the better, but sometimes in some cases for the worst. Yeah. Wow. Wow. 
Yeah, uh, thank you for sharing that. I you, you brought up something there, and, and I, I actually talked a, a little bit about this with Barry Trammell, who you obviously know, uh, who was a guest on the on the podcast a few months ago. Uh, uh, you you mentioned the way that the things were covered then uh, versus how they would be uh, just a year later. What about how something like this would would be treated today, how, how it would be reported today? Because we see such a huge difference uh, in the way news is covered uh, today um, as, as versus 25 years ago. Um, thoughts on, on I, I guess, the, the – both two questions there. Thoughts on how um, how an event like that would be covered today, uh, and then also thoughts on on the state of the journalism industry today as a whole. Well, Zach, uh, today it would be uh, in some ways really pretty simple. Uh, two words: social media. That's how mm-hmm. that's how stories are broke today. The 1995 bombing was was broken by broadcast. Uh, this would be obviously on on social media, and it would be nonstop. the The real issue, I think, for journalists in sorting out a huge tragedy like the Oklahoma City bombing, or more recently, just six or seven years ago, the bombing in Boston at the Boston Marathon, in which there were three or four people killed, but like 275 people that were that were hurt, some of them badly hurt. Mm-hmm. That um, you have everybody on social media. And everybody on social media thinks they're a reporter. And there's enormous uh, exchange of information, but there's also an enormous exchange of misinformation. And so uh, news uh, journalists, news reporters, regardless of what your, your organization you're working for, whether it's broadcast, digital, print, combination thereof, whether you're, you've been around 100 years or you started this week, but you, you are in, in a in a, what you consider to be a journalistic space, trying to sort out what is fact and what is fiction in a fast-moving story like the Oklahoma City bombing or the bombing in Boston in, I think it was 2013 or so, is that you get lumped in uh, later with everyone else who misreported what happened immediately. And so the credibility of of journalists who are again who are trying to do their best to to report only only uh, verified information that's been shared with them or that they've witnessed with their own eyes that jur- that journalism in these times takes a takes a blow and in many cases a heavy blow understandable when people look back and say well that you know this fact got misreported that didn't actually happen whatever many times when you go back and sort through it it's because of information from people that are either didn't know what they were doing or were too excited to really figure out what was true and what was not. Those kinds of things, like I said, really do erode, help erode the credibility of, of daily journalism. I'm not sure how you get out of that. Uh, social media is, in many ways, is a great, a great tool for journalists. And, and every journalist, regardless of what news organization you're working for now, uh, has a presence on social media and uh, and so many stories that you uh, that you see from the great reputable news organizations in this country and beyond. Um, you know they're broken. They're broke. They're broken first on social media. Then they appear later on their newscast, or if they've still got a print product uh, the next morning. But um, that's a real conundrum, I think, for 
for working journalists in, in, in times of, of big news, big, fast-breaking news stories, particularly when, it's, when a tragedy is involved and lives have been lost. Okay, how do I, how do I, how do, I do what I know I'm supposed to do as a, as a journalist, as a trained journalist in, in reporting only what I know to be true or what, what people have told me that I know are reputable people and are sharing good information that can be passed on to others? That's a that's a real that's a real conundrum. So, uh, and that's one of the challenges. Uh, and you asked me to respond to the challenges of of journalism these days. There are many many challenges. The business model for for print products for news organizations is badly frayed. We all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm I'm really excited, and I see this uh, in my role at, at Gaylord College here at OU that that there are many many opportunities for. For the journalists of tomorrow that we're we're uh, we're training and trying to educate here at, at Gaylord and at OU uh, to uh, to do do reporting and do uh, serious journalism, not just on traditional traditional ways, but non-traditional ways. And I think we're sending out a really good uh, generation of young people into into the world of media, into the world of journalism, that will help uh, help communities of any size. Do serious reporting that all communities, whether it's Norman or New York or somewhere in between, the kind of news and information they need, so that that people in those communities, uh, news consumers, thought leaders, however you want to describe it, can make solid decisions that to the benefit of their communities. Yeah. So I, I, a question about that, but but a, a quick lead in is I, I do want to talk about what you're doing uh, at the College of Journalism there uh, at OU. Um, but but backing up a little bit, you you, you know we do, uh, as a culture, I think we're so trained uh, to believe believe what the news says. You know, you you believe what what the newspaper says because you 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 believe that it's. You know that has a history of being reputable, history of being truthful, uh, researched, uh, not slanted, not you know, no no bias, no no opinions in there. They're just you know, it's it's reporting the truth. Uh, and, and I think, you know, for a hundred, two hundred, however many hundreds of years, you know, we've been trained uh, to believe what we read in, in the news, and and then social media comes about and headlines pop up and links pop up and everybody's a journalist or everybody has the ability to claim they're a journalist simply by by putting you know starting a a, a website typing a, a crazy headline and and some and some copy and and calling it news um and that has damaged uh, our ability to to disseminate you know what what's truth and what's not and opinions of, of you know go go haywire with you know your your different directions of of what what you believe to be true or not um wh- how, is it fixable i guess is my question um and and i'm hoping you say that it is and and talk about what what you uh, and your peers uh, around the country are doing as educators of, of the future journalists for how we can get back to being able to trust what we read um, and 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 you know kind of get past this period of time where you know this the, the whole fake news uh, of, of not really not being able to trust what you read what you see scroll past on social media. Well, I, I think the 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 answer, and it's not going to happen anytime soon, but over time, uh, rests in educational institutions. Uh, 
like like uh, this one, the University of Oklahoma, as well as common education. I've told people that if I could be czar <laughs> for a day in the common education in Oklahoma, the one thing that I would do, Zach, is this. I would require that there be four years of civics education for every student in Oklahoma before they get a high school diploma. I think if you if you had uh, serious civics education on what it means to be a citizen, a citizen of Oklahoma, a citizen of the United States, and really for the 21st century, let's face it, to be a citizen of the world, mm-hmm. that understanding how to how to be an educated citizen is 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 in many ways job one of educational institutions, and in that in that civics education would be the role of a free press, the role of media in the 21st century. What does the First Amendment mean? Not just about the piece that, that has always inspired me, but the other four aspects of the First Amendment. What, do, what does that mean in a modern society? And I think, too, that, and there have been good discussions here at OU, not just in Gaylord College, but elsewhere about the issue of media literacy and how important that is and what what we at OU can do, particularly for incoming students, to make sure that they have a, a fairly firm grasp of what, uh, of, of how to do what you suggested, which is how to take out, how to take information and try to uh, be assured that that information that they're receiving on that day is, um, is accurate and as well as being fair. I'll be the first to admit that traditional media you know, we're not, we're human beings too, and we, we make mistakes. But I like to think too that the mistakes are done, when they're done, they're done in a very honest way. And, uh, there are factors that have nothing to do with bias that, that prompt those errors. So I think it's, again, it's, it's, uh, education at flagship universities, great ones like OU, but also too at, uh, at the middle school and high school level all across the state like Oklahoma and elsewhere to uh, have serious conversations about what does it mean to be an educated citizen. And I think that educated, to be an educated citizen in, the, in this country in the third decade of the 21st century is that you need, to have, you need to be literate and have knowledge about what media is, what it has been, what it is now, and more importantly, what, what is it going to look like going forward. And, and when you're making decisions, whether it's for your own career, for your family, for your neighborhood, your community, your state, whatever it may be, what sources should you be trusting to go to get that news and information? So what what we at, at Gaylord have done in answer to the second part of your question, it, it, it sounds kind of trite, but it really is true, is that we have really have doubled down here on the journalism side of Gaylord College to 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 really, really drive home the point to our students that Accuracy and fairness have always been important. They've never been important, more important than than it is right now. That right. we absolutely have to be be um, we have to be uh, focused on those two aspects every single day when we go out, when our students go out and do and do stories. And so I, I like to think that our the, the great faculty that I work with here at the college. That they are doing, they are doing just that, and that subsequently our students who are going out and getting those, getting those first jobs, uh, wherever it may be, whether it's here in the media in Oklahoma or elsewhere, that um, they're doing well because they were, they had that instilled in them 
while they were here at Gaylord and OU. Right. Well, I, I, I hope I hope that you're right that it, that it can be turned around. I hope that uh, that that, um, that we, we we can look toward a future where where we can start trusting what we read a, a little bit more. I, I, I and, and I say that obviously knowing that that there are plenty of publications and news sources that are are very reputable and reliable, but um, just just plenty that are not. Um, I do, you know, we talked about uh, your time, a little bit about your time with the Oklahoman. We talked about uh, what you're doing there at, at OU a little bit. I, I, I want to jump back to, uh, you know, I read that you were, uh, you spent some time as the Oklahoman's Washington Bureau Chief. I have to imagine uh, that that brought, uh, that you have some, some fond memories, good stories from that period. First of all, Tell everybody what it means to be Washington, the the Oklahoman's Washington bureau chief, and then uh, roll into any any good memories or, or fun stories that you have from that period. Well, uh, for many many years, probably the better part of about uh, probably seventy five years or so, the Oklahoman always had at least one person, and sometimes as many as four, uh, based in an office in uh, in the nation's capital, and almost. Almost every one of those 75 years, it was at the National Press Club. Mm-hmm. And so um, the Oklahoman, and at one time it had a sister newspaper, an afternoon newspaper called the Oklahoma City Times. The people in that in that office, whether it was one person or as many as four, they were charged with reporting news that would be of interest to readers back home, covering the, uh, the state's congressional delegation, the two senators, and then members of the House of Representatives as well as lots of other issues that pertain that are important to the state, whether that be agriculture, uh, energy, banking, uh, uh, you know, a tax law, uh, you name it. There's, there's just a, an endless supply of, of stories. I tell people that for better or for worse, Washington, D.C. is the news capital of the world. And again, it depends on <laughs> depends on your, I guess, your political persuasion and how you look at that. You can say, you can say, yeah, that's exactly right, or you can shake your head and say, that's too damn bad. But <laughs> uh, it it is day in and day out. It's still the it's still the news capital of the world. So my time there, uh, I of course covered lots of uh, politics, uh, lots of policy, which kept me really, really busy. Uh, I mean, really busy. But it was it was a lot of work, a lot of fun. I was able to cover uh, a couple of small, uh, some small pieces of a couple of presidential campaigns, which were hectic, but I learned a lot from that. But, you know, Zach, really, uh, in some ways, the most memorable stories were were interacting with people uh, outside of politics, uh, uh, people who had uh, sports ties to, to Oklahoma. Um, if I may give you a couple of three examples. Yeah. Um, one one of my favorites was interviewing uh, Tommy McDonald, who was a yeah. All American wide receiver at OU in the 1950s, playing right. on those those really great Bud Wilkinson teams. He may have been one of the guys that that never lost a game when he was uh, his his three years as yeah. uh, on the varsity. Uh, Tommy uh, spent I think nine or ten years in the NFL, and he ended up in both the Pro Football Hall of Fame as well as the College Football Hall of Fame. You know, after his career was over, he started a really interesting business in which he marketed oil portraits of well-known people. So he would work with really prominent artists uh, who and and help them get contracts with uh, people like CEOs of big businesses, prominent people in government, 
And for a while, if I recall, he even had uh, the business of doing the portraits of all the Heisman Trophy winners for the Downtown Athletic Club of uh, New York City. So one year, I waited uh, until shortly before the Super Bowl It was that year, and somehow, I don't recall, I found contact information. Again, this was pre-internet. I found contact information for Tommy after I learned that he lived just right outside of Philadelphia in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, which is just, you know, a little more than two hours up the road from Washington. Mm-hmm. So I contacted him. He said, sure, come on up. And so I drove up and I spent an absolutely delightful afternoon with him. I heard a lot of the stories about Coach Wilkinson, his teammates at OU, as well as, you know, some of the teams he played on when he was in the in the NFL. I knew that, the course, that he had a reputation of being a small guy playing a big man's game. But somebody I was I, I was told had a really big personality, really big personality, and he sure had that. I mm-hmm. he was probably in his fifties at the time that day when I was there, but I remember him just bouncing all over the living room that afternoon <laughs> with the energy of of somebody about about half his age. He was he was a really great interview. I was really grateful for the time he shared with me, and the story I ended up doing landed on the front page of the Oklahoman uh, mm-hmm. on Super Bowl Sunday. I remember the drive, though, back home from Philadelphia to we were living in the Virginia suburbs at the time after I left his house. About halfway home, it started to rain, then it turned to ice. I took a wrong turn somewhere off the interstate, the weather getting worse. I thought I would never, ever, never, ever get home, but <laughs> I did. But another another Oklahoman I had a chance to interview when I was in D.C. was was Wayman Tisdale when he was playing for the, uh, for the Indiana Pacers. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, I was looking at the at the time they were known as the Washington Bullets, the NBA team there. I looked at their schedule, saw when uh, the Pacers were going to be coming to D.C. So, you know, I just, young guy, uh, not Internet, I just got on the phone. I called the Pacers public relations staff and requested a chance that to interview Wayman when they were going to come to town. And and the whole thing turned out to be perfect. The paper, The Pacers were practicing that morning of the game at a really, really small gym at, at Georgetown University up in Northwest D.C. And, you know, Wayman could not have been more gracious. You know, I saw the great smile that we all saw from Wayman. I mean, I saw that, you know, up close, standing right next to him. And the the Pacers, uh, the Pacers uh, staff got me a press credential so I could sit on the floor uh, during the game at the Bullets uh, Big Arena out in the Maryland suburbs that night. So that was a lot of fun for those here on the podcast who are too young to remember or <laughs> too young to know. OU has had some terrific basketball players. We really have, yeah. And it's a long history. But in my mind, in my mind, Wayman Tisdale was the greatest college player to ever play at OU. I just, I just, I know there's a good debate among among several other guys who are certainly worthy in that conversation, but what he did to elevate the program yeah. uh, in the early 1980s, the mm-hmm. first freshman ever to ever be a first-team All-American uh, in the history of the Associated Press naming All-American teams. I mean, I just, number two pick in the NBA draft. I just, yeah. nobody greater nobody greater than Wayman. And then uh, another really great sports moment I had uh, came when I asked the home office for the opportunity to uh, go cover the Baseball Hall of Fame induction when Johnny Bench, the great catcher from Binger, Oklahoma, about you know just an hour or so west of Norman here, mm-hmm. was being inducted. So I took my family to little bitty Cooperstown, New York, about a seven-hour drive or so from our house for the induction weekend. 
you know, there were, I don't know, 30,000 people that were there for the induction of Johnny and three other people in a little bitty town that, you know, was about the size of Bangor, Oklahoma, <laughs> maybe 2,500 people or so. But it was, it was really great to be there. And those of us who were credential media got a chance to interview Johnny and the other inductees, uh, uh, on the day that they, uh, the day of the ceremony, like I said, it was really, really a, a great experience. So even though, like I said, I had my fill of, of politics and policy and government and all that, which was all good. In some ways, it was the sports stories that had these Oklahoma ties, and particularly the the two guys that had these OU ties, mm-hmm. that really were really were as meaningful and as fun as anything I did in my time uh, living and working in the Washington area. It it speaks volumes uh, that uh, you know the, the some of the interviews or your times that you had at, in Washington uh, were were based on uh, Oklahomans. You know that that you're you're there. Uh, uh, you know in, in in the news capital of the world, and and it's those Oklahomans that you got to be around and interview that were that were some of your best memories. That uh, I think it says a lot about the state of Oklahoma, does it not? Well, yeah, and I think that I think it also uh, that was the focus of what we were <laughs> what we were sent there to do, which right, is right. which is pursue stories that had uh, an Oklahoma angle or an Oklahoma element to it. Very true. Uh, let's don't duplicate what the wire services and others could do. Let's look for stories that we felt were would be of interest to people in in the great state of Oklahoma, and that's what we try to do on a daily basis. So you uh, uh, you were at the Oklahoma in a really long time, um, as I understand. You started there as as an intern, um, but uh, at some point you uh, decided to to go to Salt Lake City uh, and spend some time there working for a newspaper. Um, talk a little bit about your time there. What uh, what you liked about Salt Lake City, and and then ultimately, I guess, what you missed so much about Oklahoma that you decided to come back. Well, uh, Zach. Uh, you know, first, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Salt Lake City, just like there is in some ways about Oklahoma City. It's mm-hmm. a, Salt Lake is a really lively place. It's got a really vibrant, great downtown. There are a lot of interesting neighborhoods. They're sprinkled right around downtown. The state capitol is just, you know, a few blocks away from from downtown. Temple Square is a beautiful spot, particularly during uh, during the the Christmas uh, Christmas season. Salt Lake, also a very progressive place. It has a, a light rail system and commuter rail that runs between the city and Provo, about 45 miles south, which is the home of, of BYU. Mm-hmm. The University of Utah, you know, a comprehensive university just like OU, is in mm-hmm. Salt Lake City, which means it has a, a very youthful vibe. I've told people, I said, I've seen more. I've seen more. I saw more people with tattoos in Salt Lake City <laughs> than I've ever seen in o- Oklahoma City or Washington D.C. Yeah, I mean, there it's full of young people, and it's you're really only 30 minutes or so from Park City, one of the great ski towns in the in the American in the yeah. American West for people who love to ski. And I know a lot of Oklahomans have have been there to do so, and the people there, you know, they're like Oklahomans. They're very friendly. Uh, there's kind of a worldly vibe too. The because of Mormon missionaries. Uh, Act. There's something like 130 languages that are spoken on a daily basis in Salt Lake. Oh, wow. uh, very highly educated community, as you, as you might imagine, too. Great premium put on public education uh, at both the common uh, common education level as well as uh, higher education. I worked at a, a media company that was really, really very forward-thinking. It combined uh, 
digital broadcast and print in a news organization organization better and more unique than really any other news organization in the country. I learned, I was there for 14 months. I learned an awful lot about, about uh, media, even after spending a, a career in it. And I do think that uh, what I learned uh, really does uh, continue to benefit me today in my role here back, uh, back in Oklahoma. So when you ask, well, what, you know, what brought you back, it's really pretty simple. Two words, one name, David Bourne. Hmm. Um, I knew I've, I've, I've known David Bourne now for a long, long time going on 35, maybe 40 years back when he first ran for the United States Senator in, uh, 1978, a couple covered just a very small piece of his campaign that fall. And then, so when I got to Washington, he was, he was already in his second term, uh, as the senior Senator from Oklahoma and um, so I talked to him either in person or by phone, usually several times a week when I came back uh, to management uh, at the Oklahoma and Oklahoma City. Uh, he was president of OU and would talk to him occasionally as well. And so uh, in 2015, when uh, Joe Foote decided to step down as, as dean of Gaylord after 10 really great years of transformational change, uh, President Bourne uh, reached out. I, I flew from Salt Lake to have lunch with him one day uh, in his office in Evans Hall. It was a really good conversation. Uh, he made the he made the ask, asked me to consider coming back to the state to take a position inside the college, and then if that worked out, then consider being a candidate for the for the deanship. So, you know, really, this was to be asked by David Bourne and with, with a p- opportunity to, to be in this role, this was really a, a no brainer. I, of course, had never really worked in academia, but I knew a lot about, about OU and in particular Gaylord college. I was on the college's board of visitors, uh, and its predecessor for 25 years. So I knew of course, Joe Foote, the Dean before me, mm-hmm. I knew the founding Dean of Gaylord college, uh, Charles self, and I knew the last director of the H.H. H. Herbert School of Journalism and Mass Communication before it was elevated to the college level. I knew David Derry uh, very well. So I also knew uh, a fair amount of faculty and staff, uh, too. And so when the big gift from the Gaylord family was announced uh, in year 2000, in some ways I sort of became a kind of an unofficial emissary from the Oklahoman uh, to the college, which meant... I had an opportunity to learn even more about the college than I already knew in my position on the on the board of visitors. And then, of course, again, uh, I had the blessing of the most important person at OU, which was the the president himself. So mm-hmm. I've told a lot of people I I don't think there was any way that I could have made the transition from from industry to higher education at any other place other than Gaylord and OU, and that's really only because I had a good and very close relationship with with the college and the university for for such a long time. So, like I said, yeah, I had a good time in Salt Lake, but hey, how could how could I turn down this opportunity? <laughs> well, the so so that brings me to to, to one of my favorite uh, little sections of of my questioning because I I want to talk what I love talking about with with people that have. Been uh, around Norman for for a number of years is uh, you know kind of how things have changed and you you went to school here 
you you lived in Oklahoma. You you went to Salt Lake City, and and now you're back on campus after after a few years uh, uh, of, of not being uh, you know in Norman every day. How how has Norman changed? If you can if you can uh, identify a couple things uh, of, of how Norman has changed from from your first day as a freshman uh, at the University of Oklahoma to uh, your first day as uh, dean of the College of, of Journalism and Mass Communication there. What what are those things? Well, I think obviously the it's it's first and foremost is just real simple. It's the size. You know, when I was here as a student long ago, I really can't remember Zach that there was much of anything at all west of I thirty five. Sooner Mall, I don't think when I was a student here, I don't think it had been built yet. Um I just remember just, you know, open fields and country roads. There <laughs> might have been some things, but, but, boy, I don't remember much of anything. And then, obviously, too, and and driving back up and uh, north uh, to my hometown of Perry, about ninety miles north of Norman, mm-hmm. is that, you know, the the there was a real distance of empty miles between Norman and Moore. The only thing between those between Norman and Moore when I was a student was there was a steakhouse at Indian Hills Road. Right. That was the only thing. It was just it was just vast nothing between here and the south side of Moore, which seemed like it was, I don't know, 10, 10 12 miles away. Mm-hmm. It's nothing. It was just like you were out in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma, with the exception of this one little steakhouse, which had a great reputation. I never had the budget to go eat there, right. but but I was told it was it was very good. Well, you know, now you look at the you look at the growth on every side of Norman. What at least what a third of the population lives west of the interstate now. Much of the commerce in Norman is west of the interstate. The two hospitals um, uh, on far northwest Norman and far south side of Moore, they have really you know sort of finalized that bridge between Norman and Moore, and so uh, it's just it's just all one and the same. And so today. You know, uh, the fact that Norman is the third largest city in Oklahoma, it's not even close to a, uh, a competitor after Oklahoma City and Tulsa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it really it really has grown up. It's mm-hmm. it's grown up in, a, in obviously a really big way. Uh, I think it's certainly got much more of a, of a cosmopolitan reach. There are more people here from, I think, from other parts of the country as well as other parts of the world, which is which is great. And I think that's one of the things we try to sell here at OU is that, we may be in Oklahoma in the middle of the country, but there are there are smart people here who who come to Normandy to either be educated or help others be educated, and um, and that that you don't get in every community. So, you know, no no one can ever ever say again, like I think they said many years ago, that Norman is sort of some sleepy little college town. That's not the case. But also, too, conversely, it's still its own community. It's still a county seat. It's still very much uh, a place upon itself. It's not. It's not part of suburban sprawl, even though suburban sprawl butts up against <laughs> butts up against the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still very much its own unique place. Um, again, because the county seat and most importantly the University of Oklahoma. So people can can work and live in Norman and have a have an experience that's not just you know commuting uh, to a bedroom community that looks like every other bedroom community. Uh, in the United States. So again, I just think that what you know where where Norman is now, uh, compared to what it was a long time ago, is it's you know 
musical shades night and day. So I have to ask, you know, I, I, Norman has changed quite a bit since I was a student, uh, you, you know, and, but but and we we've lost uh, some of the the places I, I frequented, but uh, we did have the mall when I was here. We did have Ed Noble Parkway uh, when I was here, uh, um, but uh, I would have to imagine that some of your favorite spots to hit up as a student are, are no longer here. Tell us about a couple of those that come to mind, places you like to go. Uh, that, <laughs> well, I've got. Uh, I, I can I can I can give you several and and you know unfortunately they're no longer here but <laughs> but um, there were places that you, you asked the question so I'll certainly be happy to answer it there were Please. you know obviously a pizza places on campus corner most notably Orin's O R I N apostrophe S Orin Orin Bachrock that guy was a genius he knew how to sell pizza to college kids and he marketed himself every day with these little small testimonial ads that ran in the in the OU daily, it was, mm-hmm. it, it looks like simple stuff today, but it was really a very creative marketing approach at the time. But the pizza place that really outlasted Orin's by a lot on campus corner was Toto's mm-hmm. and which seems like it was still around even just, you know, maybe eight or 10 years ago. Yeah. It, it, being it's not, not that on long game ago. day. Yeah. Yeah. Being here on game day as an adult, deep into adulthood. And believe me, I'm deep into adulthood. <laughs> uh, that um, that I took took my kids there to to eat before a game. So Toto's Toto's was around for a long time. Another place that that where my my roommate Gary Merrill and I would eat a lot was called Underwoods, which was off of Lindsay, kind of east of east of McGee. It was a it was barbecue buffet, a lot of it, and we paid like and again this really dates me like a dollar eighty nine <laughs> all you can eat. And so wow. I mean, what a great deal for a bunch of hungry college yeah. students, particularly a bunch of hungry college guys. Yeah, Underwoods, it was it was terrific. Obviously, there were, you know, thinking back, there were, you know, let's face it, watering holes. One of them was called mm-hmm. uh, Across the Street Restaurant. It was on Campus Corner, just kind of east of where Starbucks is now. Uh, back when I was working at the OU Daily, some of us would be there uh, kind of late in the evenings after we'd done putting out the paper. It was also a spot that had a either officially or unofficially, a wet T-shirt contest uh, <laughs> that was hosted by a guy named Jimmy Hamilton. And today, Jimmy Hamilton is known by his real name as Argus Hamilton, the Hollywood-based oh, wow. comedian. Uh, uh, but Jimmy wrote a, a humor column for The Daily called Okie Dokie. And I've told people through the years that with the obvious exception of some of the, the big names on the football team at the time, that he was probably the most identifiable student on campus. And, you know, I'll leave it, Zach, to your imagination what those wet <laughs> T-shirt nights were, yeah, were like. Yeah. Uh, I, mm-hmm. yeah, you can kind of imagine. <laughs> um, I went a few times to a place um, called the Blue Onion, which was a club off of Lindsay just before you get to 24th Avenue Southwest. But probably my, my favorite place in Norman uh, – to hang out was a, a a place called Donovan's Reef, which I guess was named after the the, the John Wayne movie of the 1960s. It was in Southeast Norman near the near the OU Motel, mm-hmm. and I can remember being out there one night at, at what everybody just called the Reef on a really great night when the OU wrestling team won a won a national championship. And a friend of mine, Jim Shear, and I were we were trying to keep track of the finals on the radio. It was really close. I don't know who the runner up was, but you know, it was kind of right down to the wire on the final night. And a, and a couple of Sooner wrestlers, guys named uh, Gary Brees and Rod Kilgore, both of them were native Oklahomans. They won 
they won individual titles that night. And like I said, it was a really great night. Everybody, a lot of people followed uh, Sooner Wrestling. And, and even though we couldn't watch it, it was, I don't know where the finals were held or the championship was held, but we're able to get it on the radio. It was really, really great. And, you know, sadly, the Sooners have not won a national title since. Uh, I cannot emphasize to you and, and your listeners how big wrestling was back then. And mm-hmm. when you talk about Bedlam wrestling, I mean, that was the biggest bedlam of all. It truly was. It was madness. It was crazy, crazy as it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, one of one of the businesses that was a favorite of mine, a place that I went to frequently, also dates me as well. And that was a it was Green Shields Typewriters, which is, if you know now where where the hideaway is located, it was just a, mm-hmm. just right north of the hideaway, just a few feet. Uh, mm-hmm. As a journalism student, you can imagine I did a lot of a lot of stories on a typewriter as well as I. I did a lot of, I typed up notes from other classes that I took, uh, uh, on, on the typewriter. So I was in green shields of Paramount getting it serviced, buying typewriter, typewriter <laughs> ribbons. And like I said, this really, really does date me, but it does show, I guess, kind of what a, what an academic nerd I was at the time. Um, but you know, green shields, like I said, was, uh, was a prominent business until of course, uh, until of course technology changed and, right. uh, and then it wasn't, but, uh, and then also too, maybe maybe the most prominent business on uh, Campus Corner, which was there for you know a long, long time, was was Harold's, the uh, the right. apparel the apparel store for both men and women. Uh, Harold's at 329 West Boyd. Uh, I really I really didn't have the budget that I wanted to have to shop regularly at Harold's. It was more aspirational than anything. But but I remember years years later that I did have uh, enough. Uh, income to buy a pair of 329s. They were these Cordovan loafers made a horse side that was a favorite of many, many guys who patronized Harold's through the years. And, uh, uh, of course, the 329s were named for the location of the business, 329 Westboard. Hmm. Uh, you know, Harold Powell, I mean, the guy who was a brilliant businessman, he had a great business. Sure was, and yeah. also, too, he was a huge advertiser in the OU Daily, and and we liked that as well. So those were... Those were some of my favorite places in Norman, as as I explained. They're all gone now, <laughs> but um, fond memories, uh, whether it was eating or imbibing or doing whatever uh, mm-hmm. of my time uh, time here on campus uh, in and around Norman. It was uh, a lot of fun. Well, like I said, one of the one of my favorite things is is hearing about some of those old spots. Some of the ones you listed, I do remember. Uh, I, I've, I've shopped at Harold's. I am I'm old enough to have have done that and, and a few of the other spots you mentioned I, I do know of uh totos being one of them but uh there are definitely some in that list that um Gr- green shields typewriter was, was not around i will admit when i was uh, no, when i, when I came. no no I, I yeah i'm sure by the not long after i i graduated i i've got to believe they didn't last a whole lot longer right. but it was a good family-owned business and uh they were all the the folks who worked in there were always very very courteous and kind to a you know, a college kid from Perry, Oklahoma. Well, Ed, you've been so giving of your time, and, and I appreciate it very much. I got two final questions for you. One, one of those uh, being, uh, will you please share um, any any contact information you'd like to with our listeners? Twitter, how they can follow you on Twitter, or any of that any of that stuff if they uh, would like to follow you or contact you in some way. Yeah, I'm on I'm on Twitter. I I'm there primarily to tweet and share to tweet and share tweets about OU and. As well as once in a while about about journalism, I try not to get into into partisan politics, but mm-hmm. I am passionate about uh, the world of journalism, and I'm 
very, very passionate about the University of Oklahoma. So my Twitter handle is is real simple. It's Ed Kelly 16, E-D-K-E-L-L-E-Y 16, numerical 16. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I've never, i got to admit, I've never really been interested in Facebook. Uh, as I, somebody once said, um, I'm not interested in my second cousin having her fifth baby in Seattle. <laughs> and uh, so I don't, you know, I, it, to me, it just seems like uh, yeah. not necessarily a waste of time, but but uh, I think I can I can communicate with people other ways. And uh, Twitter is a way that a lot of people in, in my world, in the world of academia and, and particularly in journalism, how they talk to one another. So that's a good way to good way to reach me. Very good. Well, in our in my final question, as we do with all of our guests, you get you get to choose the song that that plays us out, uh, that plays us out of, of the episode. Tell us what song you chose and why you chose it. Well, real simple, real real simple, Jack, Zach, and that is one word with an exclamation point: Oklahoma. You know, all of us who have lived in this state has have heard this song a million times with a million different renditions. And sometimes we just kind of, if you've heard it long enough, you kind of roll your eyes. But but again, don't get me wrong. It's absolutely the best state song in America, hands down. It's not even close mm-hmm. to a runner-up. But in my mind, there is nobody, there is no organization, there's no band, there's no individual, nobody does that song better than the pride of Oklahoma at the start of a, of a game. And when the you know, I can see it now, although we haven't been able, most of us haven't been able to see it this fall because of the pandemic. But, you know, when band members hustle into place in the north end zone and those first few notes are struck and then the drum major, you know, leads the strut mm-hmm. you're going downfield, heading south. I mean, you're standing there, wherever you're at in the stadium. If you're a Sooner fan, there's just, to me, there's just absolutely nothing better. There's OU there. football. Mm-hmm is the tie that binds. It is absolutely the tie that binds us all together. And the pride's rendition of Oklahoma at the start of a game, if you're there, you know you are in the right place. You are home. You are definitely home. I agree 100%. There's nothing fires me up uh, like hearing hearing that song at the start of the football season every year, and I'm fired up just to, thinking about it to, to play us out today. Ed Kelly, thanks so much. I cannot thank you enough uh, for being so giving of your time, sharing the stories. Uh, just, just thank you for being a part of the podcast today. Zach, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this as well. To all of our listeners, if you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for I Am Norman Pod. Thanks again for listening, and stay tuned for many more episodes to come. The I Am Norman Podcast is brought to you by The Hall at the Railhouse. Norman's premier event space and the heart of downtown. When all of this is said and done and life gets back to normal, the one thing we'll all be looking to do is celebrate with our friends and families. Weddings, receptions, corporate events, luncheons, banquets, proms, parties, and more. If you're looking for a place to celebrate life, we hope you'll choose the Hall at the Railhouse. For more information, please visit therailhousenorman.com or call 405 778 Zero 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 three.
Thank you.